invite you to turn in your Bibles to, um, to John's Gospel. We're continuing our series in John. And we're in John chapter 6. Our scripture reading will be verse, verses 41 to... Um, it was going to be to 59, but let me just read all the way to verse 71. So uh, scripture reading will be John 6, 41 through 71. We'll see, we'll see uh, how things go this morning. We might get that far. So the Gospel of John, chapter 6, beginning in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the father sent me, as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. 
After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the reading of God's word, and we say, thanks be to God. And indeed, God, we come now in these moments to, to hear your word. We pray, God, as we reflect on these words that you would deepen our faith and our trust and our understanding of, of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And we help that you would protect us from an unbelieving and hard heart that would lead us away from you. And may we, would, may we utter truly in the depth of our hearts the words of Simon Peter at the end of our reading. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. May we come to believe and know truly who Jesus is. And so his, assist us in that, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last Sunday, uh, we looked at the beginning of this very long passage. John chapter 6 is a long chapter in John. Uh, and all of these um, various scenes that we've seen so far in John 6 are all kind of related together. John is uh, attempting to... Uh, He's conveying one long story in all 71 of these verses, but there's several different scenes that all tie in together. Let's just kind of remind ourselves of where we are here in John chapter 6. It begins with Jesus feeding the 5,000. Again, that's 5,000 men. It's probably a much larger crowd than that. He had performed this miraculous miracle in providing food for this many people. And the crowd was very impressed at the food that was provided for them and... Um, and they wanted to make Jesus king. They thought, well, if we could get somebody who could get us free food, this, he's worthy of my vote. But Jesus escapes from them. And then the disciples, again, this is on the east side of the, the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples uh, sail that night back to the northwest side which is where Capernaum is, and Jesus walks to them on the water, and you have the miracle of Jesus walking on the water, and they um, recognizing that this is Jesus. And then it's the next day. So all of these events from uh, verse 22 all the way through 71 is the day after that miraculous feeding of the 5,000. And the crowd follows Jesus back over to find him in Capernaum. And we looked at that last week. We saw Jesus in the crowds, verses 22 through 40. And then we have here, why we stopped where we did, and we started in verse 41. Some see this as all the same group, but I think that there's a significant change that happens in verse 41. Jesus is not talking to the large crowds of people. Notice the, the beginning in verse 41, the Jews, the introduction of the, the word the Jews there. In verse 41 uh, through 60 or 59 is 
Jesus' response to two objections or two grumblings of these Jews. So I think it's a shift. Um, now, let me say this here about the Jews, just as a reminder. I've said this a couple of times in this series whenever we've encountered uh, the word the Jews in John's gospel. This is not a, a racial epithet. This is not kind of some racial comment. Um, John himself is Jewish, the writer of this. Uh, Jesus himself was Jewish. When John is using the word Jews, that's shorthand for the religious authorities overseeing all of Israel. Okay? It's not that the crowds weren't Jewish. The crowds that Jesus were feeding were, were likely Jewish as well. But when John is using the word Jews, it's, he, he's conveying the idea that these are the religious authorities. And they're the unbelieving religious authorities. Jesus has encountered this group before. In John chapter 2, at the cleansing of the temple, he's confronted by uh, the Jews there who are asking, who gives you the authority to overturn these tables and to do this? We also saw them in John chapter 5 because after he heals the, um, the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, the man goes away and he's carrying his mat and the Jews are like, hey, why are you carrying your mat? It's the Sabbath. And then he goes, well, this guy... I don't know who he was, but he told me to carry it. And then you have this interaction again. And this is what happens at the end of John chapter 5, or in the middle of John chapter 5. Uh, you have uh, already the, the workings of this group of people, the Jews, against Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 16. You can see what it says there. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And then verse 18 and this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So to kind of reconstruct the difference here between the crowds that we saw last week and the Jews here, uh, the, this, is, this is my reconstruction here. Jesus had fed the crowds. He walked away. He walked on the water to the disciples. And the next day he's in Capernaum. The crowds realize he's not there. They thought, well, he's kind of from Capernaum. Let's go walk around the lake and make our way to Capernaum, see if we can find him. They find him there. Jesus is in um, the synagogue at, at Capernaum, like it says in verse 59, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And so the crowd is approaching Jesus, kind of interrupted him with whatever he was doing and is inquiring what, you know, the, the issues that we saw last week um, about how did you get here and those sorts of things. And Jesus, you know, very unkindly was like, you just want me to make you more bread. So this is happening in the synagogue and the religious leaders are, are going, where's this crowd coming from? And who is this guy? Oh, this is that guy, Jesus. And so the crowd is overhearing the conversation of verses 22 through 40. And that's why they're grumbling on the side. They overhear what Jesus was saying about himself being the bread of life, the bread that came down from heaven. And so they're overhearing this conversation. And now they're grumbling amongst themselves and complaining, uh, uh, complaining and grumbling about who Jesus claims to be. And this is, again, another demonstration of their, just their hard-hearted unbelief. And especially from the religious leaders, the ones who should have the most um, insight into who Jesus is. They are acting 
And I, I think it's interesting that John is using the word grumbling here because elsewhere in the Bible, that's the picture of the unbelieving Israelites as they're wandering in the wilderness, even in the midst of the Lord providing manna from heaven. And they're grumbling. They're acting just like their ancestors did. They just did not recognize Jesus for who he really was. Notice what they say in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. So here's the complaint, part one. The Jews were grumbling, verses 41 and 42. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Now, I think it's, um, there's a combination of issues here in what they're saying. One is the, part of it is the, the, the aspect of Jesus claiming to be the bread, but it's the coming down from heaven part, I think, that probably really irks them the most. And you could see that in their dialogue with one another in verse 42. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, and then here's the quote, I have come down from heaven. That's interesting. It's the coming down from heaven part. And notice how they point out Jesus' physical heritage. How can this guy be of divine origin or claim to be of divine origin? We know his pedigree. Isn't he the father? I mean, we, we know his father. He's the son of Joseph, right? His mother, his father and mother, we know. There's no mention of the bread part, just the, the from heaven part. J.C. Ryle says this about this verse. Christ's lowly condition when he was upon earth is a stumbling block to the natural man. Christ's lowly position when he was upon earth is a stumbling block to natural man. And these Jews, these religious authorities, were indeed natural men. All they were looking at was earthly Jesus as a human man. They knew about his, his birth. They knew about who his parents were. But they didn't see the divine actions, the, the, who he truly was as the divine son of God. I think many in the crowd saw it. Maybe, maybe not all of the crowd, maybe the most of the crowd, but there were people who saw the works of Jesus and recognized that there's somebody more here than just a human, a human person. Jesus is, and this really is a very interesting and fascinating thing, Jesus' humility and his um, condescension to earth in human flesh is the means by which we are saved, and yet it is also one of the greatest stumbling blocks. Let's remind ourselves, Jesus was born in very humble circumstances. He wasn't of majestic birth. Remember 
the wise men, the, the magi, the magi come from the east and they actually come to uh, the, the palace at the capital city because they came to worship the king of the Jews who had been born. But he wasn't there. He was in a shepherd's stable. Jesus lived a, very, a life of very humble circumstances. And he died a humiliating and brutal death, basically the death of a, of a criminal. Even Zechariah, speaking about the coming of Jesus and his entry into Jerusalem, uh, Zechariah says these words, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Oh, in royalty and majestic robes and um, a long train of servants and worshipers. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Indeed, that's how Jesus comes. But he comes because his his pathway to the throne involves crucifixion. So Jesus was of very humble origins. Paul says to us, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, not of deity, but of his prerogatives that's due him for his deity, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus didn't fit their mold of someone who had come from heaven. They, they could not reconcile, reconcile their knowledge of his uh, earthly lineage with what he was claiming to be as being a divine person from heaven. Or as one person put it this week, quote, a poor and lowly and suffering Messiah was an offense to them. Their pride refused to believe that such a one was sent from God. They just couldn't, couldn't get past the fact that Jesus, as humble as he was, was God. So Jesus rebukes them for their grumbling. In verses 43 through 46, Jesus answered them. And again, it's probably one of those scenarios where, you know, Jesus maybe saw them conversing over to the side. Maybe he heard what he was saying. But I think elsewhere, we've seen many times in John's gospel where Jesus just knows what they're talking about. And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. And then he says these words. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then verse 45 adds to this. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So he chastises them for their unbelief, and then... 
he uh, is criticizing them here with this very famous verse in John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Jews thought that they were coming to the Father. Jesus, in fact, is the way to the Father. We will see later in this gospel, John chapter 14, verse 6, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Prior to that verse, Jesus says this right to the Jews here. No one can come to me unless the Father. So it's kind of the inversion there. He says, no one can come to the Father unless through me. Here he's saying, and no one can even come to me and thereby get to the Father unless the Father draws him. This coming to, coming to me is a synonym for believing in Jesus, for saving faith. And no one could come to Jesus apart from the initiating work of the Father. And how does he do this? He, he draws, okay? He draws. There's, there's two New Testament, and another way of uh, translating this word is to, is to drag. It could be like to draw or to drag. There's two words in the New Testament for drag. Um, one is used kind of like against, against your will. Um, that's not this one. This one is the more like draw by like enticing, and bringing one in, it, it implies kind of attraction. But this corresponds with what we saw last week in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So here we, we have an identifiable group of people that, um, that the Father gives to the Son. And then he draws them and makes sure that they will come to the Son. The unbelieving Jews here scorned Jesus as being the one who came down from heaven because they only saw him from a worldly perspective. It suggests here in Jesus' response that they only do that because they're not drawn by the Father. Jesus is essentially saying, you cannot come to the Father unless you come through me. The Father has sent me. He has made me to be the way to him, and unless the Father draws you, you won't come to me. Which means you can't come to the Father either. So Jesus is the one, only, uh, the Father is the only one who can then bring true illumination and bring knowledge, um, and he does this through Jesus. But to those who do understand Jesus, who get enlightened to who he really is, are drawn to him. And this usually looks like uh, an awareness of who Jesus is, and it usually involves some repentance for sin and faith in who he is and, and worship. We see this many times in the Gospels. When people truly get a glimpse of who Jesus is, they immediately turns to their unworthiness and his worthiness in worship. So all those given by the Father are drawn by the Father to the Son. That's what Jesus is saying here. And he, he uh, expands on this idea a little bit in the next verse, verse 45. It is written in the prophets. 
And he, he quotes, and actually it's a, a very loose paraphrase of Isaiah 54, verse 13. <clears throat> Jesus says, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, in the context of that passage, that's a, a long passage that talk about the blessings that come under the new covenant, the restoration of God's people. And in specific content about this is following the Babylonian captivity. We, we talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, this long passage goes all the way from 52 into 56, 55 or 56 of Isaiah. 52 and 53 are describing the suffering servant. 55 is the, the passage about come to me and buy bread without cost. This is right in the middle of that. And it's a description of the restoration of God's people. And the idea is, and it expands on what we see in verse 44, that the father induces people to believe. Jesus is saying, everyone who listens to the father and learns from him will come to me. You want the promise of the new covenant? Do you want to listen to and learn from God the father? If that's true, you would listen to and learn from me because he sent me. And then Jesus backs it up by saying, and I have seen the father, verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. Jesus is stating here what is the foundation of. For the verse that John begins his gospel in, in verse 18 of chapter 1. No one has ever seen God. The only God who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. John isn't just making that up. He's, he's getting that from Jesus. And that's what Jesus is saying right here in this verse. So Jesus' rebuke to the Jews for their grumbling. Is followed by Jesus' reiteration of his message to the crowd. And what we see in verses 47 through 51 is basically like what we saw last week. He's, he's repeating it over again. You'll see the themes of life, eternal life, bread, um, bread that came down from heaven, not dying, etc. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes, what you guys just overheard me talking with the crowd... Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life, making that absolutely clear. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Guess what? That was, that was a gift. That was a supernatural gift from God, and they still died. This bread, however, comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is making this absolutely clear. Jesus is not just claiming to be uh, that metaphorical bread. He's not coming to, to claim that he's giving that bread from heaven like Moses. Moses provided the bread. Jesus is not claiming to give bread. He is claiming in his own person to be the bread. And how is Jesus this bread? He kind of lets the cat out of the bag a little bit in verse uh, 51 or second half of verse 51. It's this last line. 
that sends the Jews into their second bout of grumbling. Notice what it says there in the second half of verse 51. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is using this bread metaphor, and then he's hinting at how this is going to come about. It's going to be the offering of my flesh. This is a, a, a preview. He's hinting at the crucifixion that's coming. And this is what starts the, the grumbling again. Verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? That idea would be absolutely repulsive. Horrific idea for the Jews. But notice Jesus goes, okay, hold on, you're, you're, you're misunderstanding something. No, no, you guys didn't catch my, my meaning here. Notice that Jesus doesn't do that. He actually goes to a radical escalation of it here. And this is very important. So the Jews grumbling in part two, and then you have this radical Radical escalation of Jesus' argument. They grumble, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Notice that Jesus just kind of just embraces that and runs with it. So Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and then he adds this, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So one was kind of the conditional statement. If, if you don't, then you have no life. The second one, verse 54, is a, a positive restatement of the same thing. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And then he re, uh, repeats a refrain that he's had throughout this. He's connecting this through the faith in him to the resurrection on the last day. And I will raise him up on the last day, just like verse 39 and 40 and 44. For, whoever, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the... Jesus is... is giving here a metaphor for wholehearted faith, fully devoted faith in him. They were stuck on this literal meaning, and Jesus is, is speaking in this figurative and metaphorical way, and, and it seems to be intentional to see if they will get it. Jesus isn't talking about literally eating his flesh. He's not saying you need to to do cannibalism of my actual physical flesh. He's not talking about actually drinking blood. That's prohibited in Leviticus. Those would be scandalous th things for the Jews to hear. So this one, this is not a literal meaning. Two, this is not a reference to the Lord's Supper. First of all, this is years before the Lord's Supper. Uh, this is, I believe, one of the passages that's used by the Catholic Church for their understanding of the actual body and blood of, of Christ. This is years before the Lord's Supper. 
The verbs that are used here for eating are not the same. The Lord's Supper refers to body and not flesh like Jesus does here. And if that is what Jesus is teaching here, then he would be teaching that simply partaking of the Lord's Supper would receive eternal life because that's what he's putting together. No, he's saying, he's talking about his impending crucifixion on a cross and that through faith in him, a cross itself would be, by the way, offensive and a stumbling block to Jews. Through faith in his cross, then we will live forever. And Jesus is saying, and just like eating and drinking are necessary for physical life, belief in my sacrificial death on the cross is necessary for eternal life. Just as eating and drinking are necessary for physical life, so belief in the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross for their sins is necessary for eternal life. This is why Jesus says, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Now, if I could, just for to go a little bit further here and just to see how this episode fleshes out. No pun intended, I guess. Um, Last week I had said that there were basically three parts to this this whole conversation. Jesus' conversation with the crowd in Capernaum the next day after the miracle. And then this um, interruption with the grumbling of the Jews here. And then here's the third section. Okay, Remember I, I had said... I want you to notice the crowds of people. There might be some overlap here, but there's the crowds of people in the first half. There are the the Jews in the second half. And then it was the disciples in the 12 in the third. uh, Third. (laughs) I said half. First first third, second third, third third. Um, And then this is how this ends. Okay. Again, Jesus is making this radical escalation of this metaphor for faith in his sacrificial death. And this is his answer to the Jews about their grumbling. And then notice that the disciples, when many of his disciples, in verse 60, heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who could listen to it? Sometimes this is often overlooked about Jesus. He says hard, hard things. Not easy things. These are hard. And I don't mean to pick on certain kind of Christian devotionals, but there's a lot of Christian devotionals that write and speak of Jesus that are always kind and tender terms. And that's true. He did. Um, but often in those devotionals, you'll miss the words like, you have to eat my flesh and blood, and if you don't, you have no life in you. That's hard. You read that and you go, that's hard. Well, guess what? They, they, the disciples who were standing there at that moment go, this is hard. And as a matter of fact, it says, 
that many end up leaving Jesus because of it. We often think that Jesus' ministry began really small and then grew and grew and accumulated lots of followers over the three years of ministry. And actually, in reality, it actually is kind of the, a little bit of the opposite. His fame grew to great extent at the beginning, and then Jesus' words become harder and harder and harder, and the crowds end up kind of walking away. Notice verse 61, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, okay, so it's not just the Jews, his disciples were grumbling too, said to them, do you take offense at this? My words are, are offensive. Then if, if you're offended at this, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For here, once again, you have another example. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were, who would, those knew who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you. That's why I told you. No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And people left. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. There's a moment in Jesus' ministry where the, the call to discipleship and to learn from the Father just gets a little too extreme, too radical, and too much. You know, this is a very helpful passage. This and, and several others are very helpful passage when you hear the widespread amount of deconstruction stories in the church today, right? And you know what I'm talking about when I say that term deconstruction? It's, it's now fanciful to get to, to as if you're a, were a, a Christian of, of some notoriety in the evangelical church to come out on Instagram or YouTube or whatever and now make the case for why you are no longer a Christian. Have you seen these? Show, show me. Have you seen these stories? De they call them deconstruction or deconversion stories, deconstructing their faith. And sometimes those are very hard stories to try to make sense of. Because we're like, these are, these were committed Christians. They were leaders of churches or ministries or um, leaders of their blog, at least. And and yet you're watching them just kind of just abandon the faith in wide numbers. It just doesn't seem like that should happen. But verse 66 here suggests that that's not actually that uncommon. They no longer walked with him. Like I said, there was a fourth group here that's kind of grouped together here with this Many of his disciples, his followers, were leaving him, and that Jesus now turns, and he's watching them leave. It's not just kind of they silently drift, they just don't come back anymore, um, or their attendance is spotty, you know, in, their, in his ministry things. They just they say, nope, I'm out. 
And he's watching them walk away. And then Jesus turns around to his disciples. He says to the 12, to the 12 disciples, do you guys want to go away too? That really, if there's an applicable verse today in the widespread uh, deconstructing, um, deconversion that's happening in evangelical world, what is a more applicable verse that could be used today than verse 67 to say, do you want to go away as well? What a challenge. Imagine hearing those words from Jesus. You see them? You see their backs? Is that you too? God bless Peter. I, w- I wish there was like a verse 67b that said, that tells us how long the pause there was in the response to that. And 67b, it's in a lost manuscript. And for a couple of minutes, it was awkwardly quiet. And so you just kind of want the 12 looking at each other. I mean, think about it. 20,000 people the day before. And now many, the majority of his disciples are walking away. And Jesus watches them and he goes, you want to join them? Wow. So awkward moment of silence here. And then again, God bless Peter. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Friends, I pray that that no matter what it is that we are going to face, as believers, as Christians, as a, as, a, as a Christian church, I hope that no matter what, I think I would say if our last words could possibly be, if I could pick whatever the final words for all of us would be, I would hope that it would be those words. In the midst of a whole culture just kind of walking away from Jesus, because I just can't imagine Jesus not accepting my transgender gay friend the way he is or she is or they are in the middle of this all of this deconstruction mess i hope and pray and i make this my prayer that our final words on the matter will be lord to whom shall we go there's no other place that we can go that offers us the words of life. There's no other person that is himself the bread from heaven. May we come to believe and come to know that Jesus really is the Holy One of God and we never, ever, no longer walk with him. Amen? Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you 
We thank you so much for the, the very strong words of Jesus here. The necessary words of Jesus that we've meditated on here today. God, we know that his words are very hard and offensive. Jesus challenges us with wholehearted devotion and faith in him and him alone as the only atoning sacrifice for sins. So God, we pray um, that as tough as these words are and as difficult it is, was for, for the natural person to not look past the human Jesus and not see him for who he really is, I pray that for all of us, that we, we embrace the real Jesus all the more. And God, may our final words on this matter Be Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. We thank you that you've sent Jesus to be that word and that we have the words of life. And we have this strong promise that anyone who takes of Jesus in faith, that believes in him, is pictured in this, this metaphor of, of eating this bread, that we do have this promise that he abides with us and we abide in him. God, we'd ask that you, you make this, this word embedded deep within our souls. We ask that you would do this for the sake of your son, Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we all pray. Amen. Uh, friends, we are going to be gathering at, I would say, Tentel. So we got a few minutes to, to um, care for one another and fellowship with one another. But we'll be lining up here at about uh, Tentel to go over to the Zarens to pray for Jay and for Luna. Um, and so any other last things we need to know about that? Not like our normal routine? Okay. Um, so would you stand for our closing benediction? Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you.